world for just a few moments. I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 13. The book of Romans chapter 13. And also I'll be reading just a verse or two from the 19th chapter of Luke's gospel. Romans chapter 13. And we'll read some three or four verses beginning at verse number 11. Romans 13 verse 11. And then we will look at Luke chapter 19 and verse number 11 through 15. Follow us carefully in the reading of the word tonight. And what I want to talk to you about tonight is simply this. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. How many of you remember hearing that or or, or reading that kind of statement? Way back in the early days when they had silent movies. Uh, Would to God they had them now, I'll tell you that. And some of the music, I wish it were silent. But uh, uh, used to see that caption come up on one of those Hoot Gibson movies. You remember, Bob? You remember way back there. And uh, it would say, meanwhile, back at the ranch. In other words, back where the work was going on. Uh, There may have been a little brief scene of some country scene or some little light uh, portrayal. And uh, then you'd go back to the real heart of the matter as it concerned the plot of the story. So tonight I want to talk about, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Look at Romans 13 and verse number 11. And the word says, Paul says, And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Looking back in chapter 19 of Luke's gospel, I'd like to tie in this passage with what we have just read. And you'll find that this is a rather lengthy parable. I'm not going to read it all. I just want to read down to a statement in the parable that will connect with our thoughts tonight. In chapter 19 of Luke at verse 11, The Lord gives what we know as the parable of the pounds or the talents. And he says this. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem. Now watch this, the city. And because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, pay careful attention, occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. And it came to pass when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money that he might know how much Every man had gained by trading. The Lord's servants of the Lord in his parable, I think indeed would convey to us the same message that the owner of the the master, the wealthy man, uh, gave to his servants. And that was, occupy till I come. 
Peter in the epistle of 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10 says this to us, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now in our text of Romans chapter 13, Paul instructs and admonishes those of us who are believers, he gives instruction and admonition in view of the Lord's return. In this chapter, chapter 13 of Romans, Paul tells us how that the love of God affects our lives. For example, he shows us in verse 1 down through verse number 10 how love prompts the Christian and how that that love prompts him to be obedient, and remember this, obedient to the commandments of the Lord. You remember in those first few verses, he talks about for the love is the fulfilling of the law, and for this, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. Love is the fulfilling of the law. So one of the things Paul uh, uh, talks to us about in Romans 13 is how love prompts us in our obedience to the commands that our Lord has given. And again, you'll recall that Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. That's an evidence, <laughs> pardon me, of our genuine love for the Lord Jesus. But now from verse 11 uh, down through the remainder of this chapter that we have, we have read together, Paul talks us, to us here about how love prompts us to be observant of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the second of these promptings that I want us to think about and consider tonight. How that love prompts us to be observant or to be watching for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the doctrine of the Lord's return, that is, of His imminent return, I believe, as the Bible would bear out, is one of the most wholesome doctrines in all the Bible. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3 says, Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. It is a very practical, a very wholesome doctrine. If a man really, now I'm not talking about just shallow mental concept or acceptance of that truth, but if he really believes in the imminent coming of Jesus Christ, I guarantee you that there are a lot of the old rags of sin and flesh and the world that he is going to get rid of in his life. He is looking for the coming of the Son of God. Now recall again your attention to Luke 19, where the master said to his servants, Occupy till I come. Peter was saying, in essence, the same thing in the verse I quoted from 1 Peter chapter 4, where, we, where, where he told us to be good servants and ministers, that is, again, servants, one to another. That's just another way of saying, Occupy till I come. Now, the word occupy I found to be a very interesting word. It, uh, one of the words that we get from the word, the original word from which this word occupy is translated, is the word pragmatic. Uh, the word pragmatic. Uh, the word simply means that which is pertaining to the accomplishing of duty or business. 
Now, there is a doctrine in philosophy that is called the doctrine of pragmatism. And that doctrine simply says in philosophy that that thought or ideas, that thought or ideas have, have value only in terms of their practical consequences and that results are the sole test of the truth of one's belief. Uh, a man said to me one time, uh, as I was talking to him about his soul, I asked him if he were saved. And he said, uh, well, I'll tell you one thing, preacher, I believe in God. And just all of a sudden, this is my response to him. I said, so what? In other words, you believe in God, what difference has it made in your life? What, uh, what evidence can men see in your life and mine in that we say, oh yes, I believe the Bible, so what? I believe that Jesus is coming, so what? I believe in the doctrines of the Scripture, so what? Has there been any pragmatic result in your life? Has, that, has the life that you live prove in reality the truth of what you say we definitely believe? So what the Scripture's emphasizing is that if we're truly looking for our Lord to come, there will be some practical results of that in our everyday living. Now then quickly, I want to give you four practical results from what Paul is talking about here in our looking for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Four things, jot them down, try to remember them, and you'll see them very easily. In verse number 11, Paul says, And that, knowing the time that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now, goes a strange statement, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. Now there are two facts that Paul presents to us from this particular verse. First of all, he is going to talk about knowing the season. Knowing the seasons. And he says that knowing the time. Now the word time here is not the word that is commonly used in translated time. The common word in the New Testament is the word chronos. From which of course we get our word chronology and so forth. But the word chronos which simply refers to time as such. The time of day, so on. The time of the year, the time of the month. But Paul, under inspiration, uses another word here, and the word is kairos. And that word means season, a season. So he is talking about a special, a critical, a strategic period of time. In other words, he talks about the, the critical season, uh, or the season's uh, critical place, uh, it, relative to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul had that in mind again when he wrote in the Thessalonian letter, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, and you'll hear him saying this, but of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now, Paul is talking about a strategic period of time that relates to the purpose of our Lord in coming again for us. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. And uh, he said in Matthew 16 and verse 3, he said, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, 
Uh, you can say, well, uh, red in the morning, as we say it, he didn't say it like this, red in the morning is a sailor's warning, and red at night is a sailor's delight. They read the sky, and they said it's going to be fair weather, or it's going to be foul, and Jesus said this, but can you not discern the signs of the kairos, the signs of the seasons? What he's talking about, again, is that, that, that strategic, critical season that relates to the coming again of our Lord Jesus. Paul then, I think, would say in down-home language to us, wake up. Wake up, he said. Notice the season. Observe. Do you know where you are? Do you know how near we are to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? Know the season then in which you're living as it relates to signs, if you please, of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he said something else, not only knowing the seasons, but in this verse, he talks about nearing salvation. That's a strange statement. You say, strange indeed, because I thought we was already saved. And Paul's talking about here we're nearer salvation now than we were when we believed. You say, well, I thought I was saved when I believed. You absolutely were. But Paul is saying something else that we need to understand. Salvation in the New Testament is revealed in three distinct tenses, past, present, and future. We have often said it to you like this, past tense, I have been saved. That's sailed, sealed, and settled. I am being saved. That's something else that's going on right now. And future tense, I shall be saved. But as far as my salvation, my, my becoming a child of God is concerned, I'm as good as in heaven right now because of the blood of Jesus Christ and because of the promise of the word of God, I am saved, yes. But remember, when you're looking in the New Testament, the term salvation, remember these three tenses. The past tense of salvation deals with the matter of our justification. Uh, that is, justification is the removal of the guilt and the penalty of sin from the believing sinner, and it is the bestowal of the righteousness of Jesus Christ on our lives. In other words, uh, God declares us righteous on the basis of the one in whom we've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have been saved. Yes, that's settled. I mean, that's, uh, and justification, I think you've heard me say before, is a legal term. It is, it is from the high court of heaven that when a man believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, he is saved, he's justified. God has bestowed on him the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's something present in salvation. Justification is the thing that is settled once and for all. But in the present tense of salvation, we have what is known in the Bible as sanctification. Now, that's a frightening word to some Baptists, uh, but it's a perfectly legitimate scriptural term. It's been grossly misunderstood by some groups. Sanctification, uh, first of all, let me say this. There, uh, there are two aspects of sanctification. There is positional sanctification. And there is secondly, progressive sanctification. The moment I believe on the Lord Jesus, positionally, I am sanctified. The word sanctify at, it, at, at its root simply means to set aside. I believe on Christ, he sets me aside unto himself. But there is a progressive element and aspect of sanctification. 
that progressive element of sanctification deals with that continuous process by which the Holy Spirit pulls, uh, put, puts sin out of our lives, producing his own fruit and bringing us gradually in conformity to the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's progressive sanctification. I find something in my life today the Holy Spirit reminds me of that is unlike Christ. It may be an attitude. It may be an act in my life. It may be the way I react to life. It may be the way I think. It may be my emotional life, whatever. But the Holy Spirit deals with that. And as I yield to him, he he takes that from my life and brings me into a greater likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I am being saved. Do you follow me? Thirdly, that future tense of salvation, as past tense deals with justification, present dealing with sanctification, the future tense deals with glorification. We will be glorified, the scripture tells us, with him. The, the matter of glorification is simply that ultimate transforming of our bodies, of our lives, into the ultimate complete likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, that's to take place in the future. That will take place, listen to me, at the coming, at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what John said? John said, now we're the sons of God. It doesn't appear what we shall be, but we know this, that when he appears, we shall be, tell me, like him. In other words, that's the glorification. That's the future tense of salvation. Now, when Paul said, We are nearer salvation now than when we believe he refers to that future tense aspect of our salvation. He is not saying that we're just gradually drawing closer to justification and uh, becoming a child. Oh, no, he's not saying that. He is saying we are nearer now the coming of Christ. We are nearer now than when we believed and when he appears, this glorification that he has promised and provided will indeed be ours. It seems that today, indeed, we are nearer than ever before. Church and Christians through the centuries have believed that often they saw in their own generation things that seemed to be pointing toward the imminent coming of Jesus. And yet there seemed to always be something lacking. And yet you look all around us today and so many things have been fulfilled of a prophetic nature that I believe surely we can say in a more intense manner than Paul even did, we are nearer salvation now than when we believe. I think of those things that are pointing to the return. The the whole thing just seemed to be coming together. I think especially of of the rebirth of the nation of Israel. I think of the return of the Jews to the promised land. That's never happened in generations past. I think of the status on a worldwide scale of the city of Jerusalem, the rise of Russia in our own lifetime, as well as the demise of Russia, the drawing together of the European European powers that once formed the old Roman Empire that Daniel said would be brought together and would be brought to life again at the end time of, of, the, of, this, of, the, of this age. I think as well the apostasy, the departure from the faith in professing Protestant churches today is another fulfillment of what the Bible says is indicative of the nearness of the coming of Christ. 
men today, churches, for example, who once stood firm for the faith. They believed in the fundamentals of the faith and now they have departed from those. They deny them. They deny the very word of God. They deny the very Christ whom they have at one time declared to believe in. That's apostasy, a departure from that. And you see it happening everywhere uh, all around this very world of ours. I think too of, the, uh, of Rome's growing influence and the modern ecumenical trend that is so popular among religious circles today, the drawing together of all the religions of the world, one world religion. I think that's an evidence of the, of the coming of Christ. And then indeed the awakening of China where in the book of Revelation you find where an army of two million men will march over the Euphrates River against Jerusalem in that terrible final battle. And yet again today, do you realize that China has literally a two million man army? I think that is not a coincidence. I think again it is simply saying to us as Paul did, our salvation is nearer now than when we first, when we believe. The general lawlessness in our country the violence that prevails, the dangerous times in which we live, the terrible, terrible things that are taking place. Ah, I believe that if you just listen in your heart, you can almost hear the footsteps of the Savior at the threshold of the door. I believe he's coming. And that day may be today. I believe that with all of my heart, perhaps today. Jesus said in Matthew 24, that uh, watch therefore, watch. For you know not what hour your Lord doth come. In other words, we are to watch vigilantly. Watch for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And love prompts us to do that. Have you ever had a loved one go away and they've been away for a long time and because you love them so much, every day just grows exceedingly more miserable as you long for that loved one to appear. So it is, love in the heart prompts us to watch vigilantly for the coming of our blessed Lord Jesus. Look at verse number 12. Verse number 12 reads again like this, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on, notice this word, the armor of light. Now what's an armor? Who usually wears an armor? Uh, The soldier has his arm, armor. Uh, especially in Paul's time, the Roman soldier with all those uh, at headgear and the breast, metal breast covering and, and uh, armor it was. So Paul here is saying to us, secondly, in view of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we need to war valiantly, to war courageously. Now here's the way he says it. The casting off, he said, casting off, he declares, uh, the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light. Now, this casting off and the putting on suggests a definite and a complete and a, a radical act. Put off that old uh, the armor, the, or the, uh, the clo- clothing of darkness. Put on this armor of light. Now, when a fellow joins the United States Army, he is sworn in. And after he's sworn in, he goes by and they give him those perfectly fitting clothes that he wears, uh, pants that are just tailored and shirts that are tailored and boots that are just the exact same. I can see you, some of you fellas, you all know better than that, don't you? And a hat that's three times too big or two times too small. But nonetheless, when he gets in there, what would you think of that man who has now joined the military? 
And the next morning when the Sarge calls them all out for inspection and review, here stands this one fellow. He's got khaki pants on, but he's got on a plaid coat and a green tie. I don't know how more ridiculous I guess he could get. Uh, and orange shoes. How about that? And here he stands. Uh, man alive. I'll tell you right now, uh, that sergeant will work him over in short time. Uh, the whole thing is Paul is saying, hey, you've joined the army. You've gotten in God's ranks. Now he's saying, wear the uniform. Let it be known that you're, that you're a child of God and that you're part of his great army. You're part of his great family. Cast off those old civvies, those civilian clothes and put on the uniform of one who belongs in the rank and the file of our Lord. In other words, I think Paul would be saying this. We are to be identified by the clothes we wear. That is, by our outward conformity to the word of God, to the rule of God. Now, I've never been uh, in the military. Uh, they do not take morons nor preachers. And uh, I might qualify at either point. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I, the only thing I ever belong to is the future farmers of America. I belong to that. And <laughs> I don't know what else. Tried to get in a girl scout, but they turned me down. But anyway, uh, I, uh, I, I, what was I saying? My soul. Uh, the whole story is we wear the uniform. And those things identify us. The character of Christ. We're to put on the armor of light. Let me move on quickly. Verse number 13. Another thing Paul says love prompts us to do is to walk virtuously. Watch vigilantly, indeed. War valiantly, yes. But verse 13 says that we are to walk virtuously. Now what he does in verse 13 is that he tells us the right way to walk. And you're right. And then he tells us the wrong way to walk. The word walk in the scripture has to do with the outward life, the outward behavior. The outward conduct of the Christian that men see. What they see in your life. Now, man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. We know and God knows the heart, but man doesn't. So what the Lord is saying is, wear the right kind of clothes. Walk the right kind of life so men will know by your life, by your conduct, by your behavior, by your actions and so forth in life, they will know that you are a child of God. Now at verse 13, look at the first part of the verse. We call it verse 13a. He tells us the right way to walk. He said, let us walk honestly as in the day. Now the word honestly here does not refer so much to integrity, that is being truthful. We could include that. But it has more of the sense of becoming. Walk in a becoming way. A way that is seemly for the child of God. I once saw a dry cleaner's advertisement and the dry cleaning establishment advertised themselves like this. They said, if your clothes are unbecoming to you, they should be coming to us. That's pretty good. And so on, Paul is saying the same thing. If your clothes, if your walk is not becoming, you need to come and get that in the right way. You need to walk right as a child of God. And in the walk that we walk, the conduct of our life, we're giving testimony to the reality and the genuineness of our profession of faith and even of our love for the Lord Jesus. Now, look at the latter part of verse 13. And your Paul tells us the wrong way to walk. 
He said you're not to walk in rioting. The word rioting means partying, wild parties. It had uh, originally the idea of those who would march through the streets at night, drunken, drunken men singing and partying way up into the hours of the night and all that goes with drunken partying. Paul is saying, oh, that's the wrong way if you're a professed Christian. That doesn't identify you to, the, to, to men around you as a child of God. Not only that, but he mentions another thing, not to walk in chambering. It's an interesting word. Is the word coite. And the word simply means sexual intercourse. That is of an evil, ungodly sort. Out of the bonds of marriage. That's what he's talking about. And you say, I wonder why the world Paul be writing to Christians about that. Uh, if he lived if, if he lived in our day, he'd have more to say about it, I'll tell you that. And yet again, we live in a day of promiscuous sexuality in America. And Paul is saying, hey, if you have love in your heart for God, oh, he's saying, listen, don't walk in that kind of walk. And then he said, not of that, that we're not to walk in uh, wantonness. The word wantonness simply means unbridled lust. That is, desire that has uh, no restraint, no control. It speaks of excess. How many people I hear today say, I just can't help it. Man, alive, if you're a child of God, God can help it. And the whole truth is, he wants to help it. And if you surrender to him, don't let the devil give you that lie. He hatched, uh, he laid the egg and sat on it and hatched it out that tells men, I can't help it. God has provided a sufficiency in Christ that you can be everything you ought to be. And not only that, you can do anything you ought to do. I instruct you, you can do it. God has never even forbidden one thing in the scripture that is, that, uh, that is impossible by his power to live and to walk in and to abide by. So our sufficiency is in Christ. Not only wantonness, but he says not to walk in envy. The word is the word that's often rendered jealousy. That's an envious and contentious rivalry. Paul said, hey, we're not, in con we're not in a contest with each other. We're not rivals one or the other. So many times I go into areas and churches and I find one church, they're, uh, they're a rival of another church. They can't even rejoice when somebody over at that other church gets saved. Or if the other church has a great increase in attendance, that other church can't rejoice in it. Man alive, Paul said, that's no way for a child of God and a body of believers to uh, live and to walk. Not only that, but finally he mentions lust. The word lust is a word that means a, cra a, a craving, passionate desire. Now, the word itself may be used either in a good sense or a bad sense, determined by the context. In this context, it is an evil desire. Paul is saying, don't walk according to the evil desires or lusts. As he would say in Galatians 5, don't walk according to the flesh. Walk in the Spirit. Order your life by the very Spirit of God. Finally, let me look at verse 14 with you. Paul says, now, another thing that this love of the coming of Christ will prompt in our life is awaiting for him victoriously. We're waiting victoriously. Now, by the word wait, I don't mean just sitting down with folded hands and twiddle your thumbs and sit with your eyes peeled toward the sky. No, remember what Jesus would say through that parable? Occupy till I come. 
be practical, be busy, be, be, be on the task, ministering one to the other, serving one another, as Peter indeed has told us. Our victory then is made more urgent, uh, Paul would tell us, by, by the very fact of the imminent coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we must indeed, while we're waiting, observe what this verse has provided, God's provided for us, and what he's prohibited for our lives. Notice what he said. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that verse. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Now, two things he said. He reminds us of what God has provided for us. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he is saying, clothe yourselves in all that Christ is. Let his character be evident in your life. The character of our Lord Jesus, compassionate, humble, faithful, trustworthy, all of the traits that you can apply and discover in the life of Christ. Paul is saying, put that on. In other words, Jesus Christ is the very moral raiment, the moral clothing that we wear, a, a, a raiment which displays, as I've just said, the character of our Lord Jesus. Do you realize that's the goal God has for us? Not that we just simply go to church and we hear the preacher and we listen to the singing or we sing along with the, the congregation. No, but that we become more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally he said this, that, that he prohibits. Make no provision for the flesh. Now, you know what provision is, don't you? Uh, David took over to his brothers when they were facing Goliath, provisions. He took, well, he called it vittles, I guess. Provide. In other words, Paul is saying, Christian, don't feed the flesh. Don't feed the flesh. The flesh, indeed, this old nature, has endless lust which are just waiting to be indulged. So Paul says, don't make any provision for the flesh. How many of us do that? What about the TV you watch? the programs you watch? What about the music you listen to? What about the pictures you observe? What about the novels you read? Paul says, don't make any provision for the flesh. Listen, the more you feed the flesh, I guarantee you, the stronger that rascal will be in your life. So he's saying, that's not the way to walk. These things are prohibited. Wait victoriously, and while you're working and occupying until the coming of our Lord, there can be victory in your life. Starve that old nature. The flesh loves the things of sin. Like I often say, like a hog loves slop. Put it out there in front of you, and I'll guarantee the flesh will give you chill bumps and goose bumps, and, you'll, uh, and the old nature will thrill. Don't make any provision. Don't make any convenience for the flesh. Stay in the Word of God. Stay on your knees. Stay faithful to God. Stay true to your witness. God help us that we will let that love for the coming of Christ provoke us to be the kind of people and prompt us to be the kind of people we ought to be. He's coming, folks. You believe that? I believe that. And yet I believe if we believe that, it'll be evidenced not only in our church service, but it'll be evidenced by the amen of the life you live tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and again back on Sunday. God, help us 
to follow these instructions, to indeed watch vigilantly, to indeed war valiantly. We're in a fight, folks. It's not a picnic. And the devil's waging war all around us. We need to fight courageously and stand up. And that's the reason I urge you to get, I urge you to get that tape from last Wednesday night. It'll help you know some of the tactics of the enemy, what he's trying to do, how he's trying to brainwash our country and brainwash our society. God help us then to wait victoriously, having victory in our life at every turn and at every point. Let's pray together, please. Our Heavenly Father, we believe with all of our heart that you're coming and that you're coming soon. There are so many indications all around us. Every day we listen to the news. Lord, our, our attention most every day, even on our national news media, is focused on Israel and the Middle East, focused on Europe, the coming together of that nation. Lord Jesus, may we look up, may we realize that this may be the last day we'll have to serve one another. May we do it, may with that gift that you have given us, whatever gift that may be that you have given to all of your children, may we discover it, and then may we use it to honor, to glorify the precious, the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. We'll thank you for it. In his dear name we pray. Amen.